0: Good singing this morning. You may be seated. Good singing indeed. Take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 23. We're continuing in our series with Joshua. In fact, this is the last in the message series for Joshua. And his walk with God. Certainly, many, many other things could be said about Joshua. Uh, we have chosen to focus our attention in the preaching on Joshua, uh, on victory. Uh, and so we have looked at his life so far and the victory over the flesh and his defeat of the Amalekites in Exodus 17, victory through faith on the way to Jericho in chapters 1 through 8. Excuse me, 1 through 6, pardon me. And then victory beyond failure in chapters 7 and 8. A just man does fall seven times, yet riseth up again. And so we're certainly glad that there can be victory beyond any failure uh, that may come into our life. Well, this morning we're coming to the idea of victory for the future. I appreciate Sarah, apparently from the first service, telling Zach to sing victory in Jesus. Uh, It fits very well. And some of you saying... Praise God! How many of you did that? I mean, that, that, is, uh, it, that is the Baptist National Anthem, right? Victory in Jesus. And so when you sing it, you've got to say it. Uh, but uh, it is certainly a good old hymn. I enjoy it immensely. And it goes wonderfully well because Joshua is a type, a prototype, a picture of who Jesus Christ is in our life. And so we're glad for uh, a good study of this Old Testament character because he teaches us how we are to live within the promised life that we have in Jesus Christ As Joshua led them into the promised land that God had given to them. Well, here in Joshua chapter 23, we'll read the first 11 verses this morning. Uh, We'll cover chapters 23 and 24 as we look in detail at victory for the future. Uh, Take note this morning, what Joshua is doing in the preaching, in in the teaching, or in his admonition to the congregation, what he's doing in this passage is talking to the generations. It's not just the generation of Joshua who was of the younger generation going into the promised land. This is now to the third generation after those who came out of Egypt. And so it's a great message for us this morning as we come to it today. The Bible says this beginning in verse number one of Joshua 23, and it came to pass a long time after that the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua waxed old. And, stricken in age. and Joshua called for all Israel and for the elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age. What Joshua is doing here is talking to the people about what will be. He's gathering first together the leaders and as we get to chapter 24, we will find that he opens it to the whole of the people. In verse 3, ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He that hath fought for you. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off, even unto the great sea westward, the Mediterranean. And the Lord your God, verse 5, He shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight. And ye shall possess their land as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Boy, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is exactly what Joshua was told by Moses. This is exactly what Joshua was told by God. And here we find a generational passing of truth to the next generation. He goes on and says, and ye shall possess, excuse me, uh, ye, that ye turn not aside, verse six, uh, aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left that ye come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. For the Lord hath driven out from before you great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. Why? For the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you, as he hath promised you. Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that ye love the Lord your God. Father, help us this morning as we come to the truths in these two chapters. May we see the victory that is not just ours in this present day, but the victory that is ours for every coming day. The victory that can be ours for the generations that follow. Help us, O Lord, to know the truth. Help us, Lord, to have that truth settle within our lives. And as we walk according to your word, may it make us wise unto salvation, but also able to serve appropriately. Lord, help us to see this morning what victory looks like, especially in this group of parents and grandparents as we try to prepare for the next generation. Bless us in this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've taken a brief look so far at the man Joshua. His life is most definitely one of victory. His first first battle demonstrated how we can have victory over the flesh. In the second sermon, we noted that victory came through faith. And last week we noted that there is victory beyond our failures. From chapter 9 to chapter 22 of the book of Joshua, the Israelites go about invading Canaan, attacking both to the north and to the south and to the west, and establishing the rest that God promised them in this land that he had given to them. They are very much a picture of our lives when we get saved and trust Jesus Christ and come into this eternal life that God has given to us. He's promised us a life that is good, a life that is blessed, a life that is in keeping with His Word. And within that life, their experiences in the promised land teach us much about how we are to live. There were certainly moments of failure in chapters 9 through 22 sometimes in the people. One of my favorite stories is when one of the tribes goes in to take over a place, and the Bible says they could not drive them out because they had iron chariots. By the way, were the iron chariots too much for God? No, but they seemed to be too much for their faith at that moment. There are still times, even in a blessed Christian walk with God, where we will run up against things that seem impossible to overcome, but you still can't overcome them. What Joshua is doing here, as a leader is passing from the scene, he's giving to the people a, a, a marching orders, a commission, a call, commands for the next generation. This morning, what I'd like to do in the preaching is preach to us as a church about how we generationally do the work of God and how we ensure that this church does not become like many other churches that we know in our area that used to love God and used to serve God and used to do that which is right, but then fade away, fall away, forget God altogether. Oh, It's a very real danger, and it's why here at the end of this book of victory and the victorious life that can be ours, that Joshua gives these very words to these very people. Joshua addresses the leaders and the people. In both instances, in chapters 23 and 24, he addresses the past, the present, and the potential blessings into the future. I'm often asked this question, usually by parents. How do we make sure that future generations love the Lord? How would you answer that question? The answer is found in these two chapters. The answer is found in Joshua's admonition to Israel. By the way, that is only a question that can be answered by those very future generations. You moms and dads cannot guarantee that Susie or Johnny will grow up to love Jesus like you do. Now, there are things that you can put into their life to help ensure that, and there's things that you can remove from your life that will enable that in their life, but you can't guarantee that. What Joshua does in these chapters is lays before us how we have generational success in the Christian life. Let's stop and think about our own church for a moment. I'm going to embarrass some of you. And ladies, don't get too mad at me when I do this, okay? How many in here are over the age of 60? Raise your hand real high. Not like this, real high. Come on, you're, you made it to 60 and beyond. Hallelujah. Keep them up. I didn't say put them down. Come on, yeah, I, I know you're older than me. Look around. This is what I would term within the church, the older wiser, I've lived my Christian life well generation. All right, now you may put your hands down. Some of you are like, that was hard to hold it up that long, Kyle. All right, now those of us who are between the ages of 30 and 60, raise your hand real high. Oh, about the same number. The early service had a few more in the 60 plus and a few less in the 30 to 60 because those of us in the 30 to 60s, keep your hands up. I know they're hard. I mean, it's not that hard. It's just raising your hand. It's like you're asking me a question. I'm letting people look around. It's quite a few. It's a good number. All right, put your hands down. That, that is usually within a church the active generation, usually. I don't know that the older generation feels quite like Joshua where he says, I'm old and stricken of age. But there may be mornings that older generation does feel like that. Now let's do another exercise, including kids and teenagers in here. How many are aged 30 and younger? Raise your hand real high. We need to see who it is. Hallelujah. It's almost as many hands. And think about all the little ones running around. Keep your hands up. Don't put them down. Think about all the little ones running around in the back in the classrooms this morning, getting taught back there. All right, put your hands down. Thank you. These are the generations of the church. You know what I'm actually glad for, and I always love it when she can come or either of these ladies can come, but Miss Mary Leonard is in her 90s. Now, I know you're not supposed to say a woman's age, but I know that she's watching from home and and that she's in her 90s, and Miss Ida Lindner is 102, heading for 103. And so if they were here, we'd have to have another category of 30 age blocks, right? But simply put... These are the generations of the church. This is who we are. It's not that the older generation is the most important generation or the youngest generation is the future and hope. It's these are the actual generations of our church. And so we come to a passage like this and Joshua begins to address generational truth or the passing of generational truth. It brings us to a moment of thought and pause. It causes us to reflect and not just think about, oh, some high in the sky, pie in the sky, spiritual walk, but actual practical truth. What are we doing as a church to be successful generationally? How many churches do you know? And please don't raise your hand. But how many churches do you know of where it's just a generation of 60 plus? That's not bad. Those people have been faithful to that church and thank God for that. But somewhere along the way, the teaching of generational church or generational Christ-like living, somewhere along the way, it failed. For whatever reason, it's up and determined by God. It is he who puts his spirit upon a place, and I'm glad that he's done that here. When you look at our church, you see the generational dispersion. It's actually quite healthy for our body. We have close to an even split across the three active generations that are present within our church. We have 246 people in membership and 300 regular attenders between the early and the second service throughout the week. We have about a hundred givers take in each of those groups. Now, the primetimers feels like they have more because they have actual more homes represented, but those of us who have three or four kids, we catch up to the primetimers in numbers real fast. As a church, and as a church as we grow, it ought to always maintain a healthy balance between the older, wise, I've lived my life well generation of Christians who are engaged in teaching and encouraging the younger generations of Christians with the younger generation who ought to be always eager and active to keep the Lord's blessing upon that church. Well, how do we do that? It's by walking with God. It's why this series has lasted one year and into this. As we study these Bible characters, it's so that we, as a diverse group of people, can find Bible characters that we associate with, that we find likeness to, that we can draw similarities and lessons from. My point is that the heart of Joshua's message this morning about future generations, that message of generational truth about God is key for a health in this place. If we're going to be healthy, we all have to know from the oldest generation to the active generation to the up-and-coming generation why we do what we do and how we go about it. That's what Joshua is doing in chapters 23 and 24. He's old, he's stricken in age, he was of the young generation or the middle-aged generation that obeyed God in the wilderness, carried through with the youngest generation, set the standard for him, led the way for him, and now he was departing. What's going to become of the place? What's going to happen? Let's dive into the text this morning and see two realities for victory into the future in every generation of believers. Joshua offers first in our outlines the challenge to the next generation. He offers a challenge for them to meet. Every generation has these challenges given to them. By the way, the church, and when I say the church, I mean the church universally, meaning all of the different local churches around the world, it is always dependent upon the next generation. It's always dependent upon that. I had to laugh this week as I was getting the message ready. I sat down and did some calculating on our church staff. On the staff itself, Edward is the elder. Do you feel that way, brother? I do. The elder. The elder statesman of the the lot. And I got to thinking, by the time Zach, the youngest on the staff, gets to being my age, I will almost be Edward's age. I mean, it dawned on me, we got a lot riding on the younger generation. But that's the way it should be. In other words, a healthy church does not say, well, they don't know what they're doing. A healthy church says the younger generation has value, but the younger generation says so does the older. And there is a great truth when I came to that this week. There is another truth that I came across. There are teenagers that within the next 15 years will move into that category of 30 to 60 year old teenagers. Think about that for a second. And in the next 15 years, there's some in that older generation that will no longer be in our church. They'll have retired to their reward in heaven. What happens to a place? How do we guarantee victory into the future? Well, Kyle, you're always going to be the pastor, and that'll guarantee success. It never has, and it never will guarantee success. I'm a pastor, and the pastor here, because God's called me here. I planted this place, and remember when it had two. But I don't know what it will be like when it has 2,000 or when we have multiple churches planted out of us and as we continue to grow. What Joshua is giving here is a challenge that the church cannot be content with who they are. They always have to be ever drawing nearer to Almighty God. They always have to be growing closer to Him. They have to be generationally healthy. Victory may be assured as the current construction Of the church exists, but if parents do not teach their kids the truth, and if new converts are not made within the broader community of this place, then our church will cease to exist like so many others in our area have. So it sounds a little bit like this is all dependent upon you as much as it is dependent upon me. You want victory into the future? Victory over the, over the flesh, victory through faith, and victory beyond failure sets us up as a body whole to have victory for the future as the days roll along. Joshua challenges the next generation, letter A, to know God's promise. So what is within this challenge then? What is it he's challenging us to know? What is it that each generation, but especially the next generation, must know? And that is, first, the promises of God. In verse number 5, he says that the promises of God were real and set upon them. In verse number 10, he says the same thing. In verse 5, he says, The Lord your God he shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight and ye shall possess their land as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. If you want to be successful in the life that God has for you as a Christian, you have to let God work on you, in you, and through you. What Joshua had done is let God do that for them. And now what he was saying to them is there's still a little bit of work to do. We have rest in the land. All of the tribes have possessed their inheritance. But now you have to go out and finish the job. You all have to go out and keep up the work that is necessary. God had fought for them and God for the next generation would continue to fight for them. The promise that is made to them for the land is made to us for the life that God gives to us. Sometimes as a pastor, I wonder if our current active generation, the age 30 to 60, those who are established in their careers and those who have the influence and impact out in the community that we ought to have, those who are regularly every day out rubbing shoulders to the world, I wonder sometimes as a pastor if we even have the will to fight the good fight of faith. Mom and dad, if you're not willing to do what is right according to the word of God, you can't pray it into your kids. You can't hope that some magical, mystical overtaking of those young people comes in and says, well, my dad and mom went to church, but they were kind of lazy and lackluster in their attendance and their faith towards God. But buddy, I want more of what they didn't want. Why would they want that? It's nowhere taught in the Word of God. In fact, the, the, the process in the Word of God often comes this way. First generation is godly, holy, and loves the Lord. Second generation is eh. Third generation is wretched. That's generally, if you study the Bible and the families of the Bible, that's generally how it goes. David, great, loved the Lord, made mistakes, but loved the Lord. Solomon wanted wisdom and wanted the things that were important, but married himself and brought 999 wives and concubines. And his son, terrible. It's a pattern throughout the whole of the scripture. I hope the next generation of Christians is within our church willing and ready to fight and to serve God with their whole heart. But may I say to parents and grandparents, if you in your generation are not willing to hold forth the promises of God as true and actionable in your life, why would the next generation, why would they care? you know the world can be reached for Jesus Christ in one generation? Pastor, I think you're a little crazy. No, he can. The early church started with 120, and by the time the second generation, their kids were, uh, were moving up and out of this world, the second generation of the early church was so influential that the Roman emperor was literally hauling them off to prison and martyring them, killing them. They had made such an impact on the whole of the world. The Bible literally says, these who turned the world upside down. It came from 120 people. Now, I'm not saying this morning that this church assembly, in this room, there's probably 165 of us in here. That means the early church was fewer in number than this auditorium this morning. And they turned the whole world upside down. Why? Because they knew the promises of God. They knew what God would do through them. As I mentioned, God promises to work through us, but it only comes as we are allowing Him to work in us and for Him to work on us. The life given to us in Christ is a life of promise. It is a life of opportunity and optimism. Do you view your Christian life as one of promise, opportunity, and optimism, or is it just one terrible circumstance after another? And you say, Kyle, you don't know my circumstances. I don't. But the promises of God are new and fresh and real every time we come to them. As we come and claim those promises from God and in obedience keep those promises before God, it is then that we understand who God is and why we serve Him at all. I hope you see your life as an opportunity to shine... And to show the goodness of Christ into your world. I can't come into your workplace and in your generation impact your workplace for Jesus Christ. I can preach to you on a Sunday morning. I can tell you what you ought to do. I can guide you into all truth. But it's you that have to take the truth out into the world. And so whether you're of the older generation or of the active generation or of the up and coming generation, whichever one you are this morning, make it yours, the promises of God. Make them yours. Take them out into the world with you this week. Begins the challenge in knowing God's promises. Secondly, it's to know God's person. In verses 6 through 11, we read of personal things that God did for them. They were to be courageous. They were to keep the law, but God had brought them out of those nations. God had singled them out. God had chosen them. God had worked in their life. And in verse number 8, we read a very interesting statement. The Bible says, Cleave unto the Lord. Verse 11 says, Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that ye love the Lord your God. These verses speak to the personal nature of knowing and approaching Almighty God. To be successful in the Christian life, we must cleave to Him, the Bible says. This is a personal attribution. You say, well, I don't even know what that means. It means that it's something that is attributed to only you. You can do it. I cannot cleave to God for you. I mean, I'm glad I come to this church, Pastor, because I think, I sense, I understand, I can hear from your preaching that you, brother, cleave to God. Praise the Lord. I hope that's true. I hope it's always true of the pastor that stands behind this desk. But I cannot cleave to God for you. By the way, kids in here, your parents cannot cleave to God for you. The word cleave is the same word used in Genesis 2 and verse 24 when Adam says that a husband and wife will leave their father and mother and cleave one to another. It means join in intimacy together. That they will join themselves in intimate knowledge, holding to each other, joined in that matrimony. And what the Bible says here is cleave to God. How much time do you spend getting to know God? How much time this week have you spent? getting to know God in his very person it's only through the word of god that reveals that god reveals his person to us god wanted them to cleave to him this speaks to deep connection of trust confidence and dependency Interestingly, in verse number 12, Joshua warns them not to join or cleave to the nations around them, not to cleave or marry the women from those nations, not to cleave or take the gods of those nations. They had conquered them. Why would they join with them? God wants us to know him above all else. That's why Paul's words in the New Testament have great application here. In Philippians 3 and verse 8, the Bible says, Yea, doubtless. Paul then goes on to say, And I count all things but loss. Man, that sounds kind of depressing. You lost everything, Paul? I literally count all of it as lost. It's no good to me. It's not important to me. For what or for what end? For the knowledge of, for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Would you say that in your life? Look, I, I don't consider anything else in my life important except for knowing the excellency of God. That's what he's telling them here in Joshua 23. He said, hey, listen, if you want to be a successful next generation, if you want to be a successful now generation, you have to put everything else aside and desire only to know the excellent nature of God. Boy, that sounds radical. I know. Look at our culture and look at our country and tell me how holy it is. Hey, pastor, I wish somebody fixed all this political mess. How about some Christians get serious about their faith? I bet it solves it real quick. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, Paul goes on to say. And do count them but dung as refuse. That's what dung is. That I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, that the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. In the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable or being made similar to him unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. I've often wondered as a pastor what it would be like if a church had a whole generation of believers go all in on knowing God. What would we be like? Well, I mean, pastor, I kind of feel like that's what we are right now. You don't, pastor? I just wonder what a generation of Christians would look like if they went all in on knowing. I want to know God. I want to get in this book. I'm not satisfied with just Sunday morning, come in here and hear you holler at me. I want to come to the word of God and have an intimate and personal relationship with him. I mean, I'm not going to take my Bible and stick it up in my dashboard and pick it back up next Sunday morning and bring it in here. I'm actually going to open. I'm actually going to read it. I want to know the one that wrote this book. He's the one that spoke everything into being, and he put everything that we're supposed to know about him in these 66 books, these 1,300 chapters of the Bible. They seem like they might be pretty important then. The challenge is first to know God's promises. The second is to know God's very person. The third, letter C, is to know God's punishment. Wait, I don't want to know God's punishment. Oh, no. If you don't know his promise and you don't know his person, you're going to know his punishment. Take it from me as a kid that grew up in a house where there was some good discipline assigned by my father. The rod of correction met the seat of instruction quite often in our house because I did not know the promises my dad made and I did not know my dad personally meant all those promises that he made and so punishment came. By the way, any good earthly father will follow the model of our heavenly father. In verses 12 through 16, we did not read him this morning. He says this in verse number 12, else, that's a good word, it means it's a transition. Else, if you do in any wise, go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages unto them, and go unto them, and they to you. Know for sure, know for a certainty, that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations. The promises are gone. But they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until ye perish from off this good land, which the Lord your God hath given you. This is rough. You want a good Christian life? Walk with God. You want a bad Christian life? Walk in your own flesh. That's what he's saying here. You you want to have a happy time in the promised land, Israel? Cleave to God. But if you will cleave to the flesh and the things of this earth, it's going to be trouble for you. Punishment comes. It comes because he loves you. In verse 14, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and ye know in all your hearts and in your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. In other words, I knew his promises, I knew his person. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Here's a generational truth to the second generation. Therefore it shall come to pass, that as all good things are come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he have destroyed you from off this good land, which the Lord your God hath given you. When ye have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves to them, then, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land, which he hath given unto you. You can stay where it says good land. You could write good life very easily in your Bible. As a New Testament principle of grace, you could write the good life. You want to live the spiritually good life? Then walk with God. You want to live the spiritually bad life filled with evil and problems? Walk away from God. God gives them two positive encouragements. Know my promises, know my person. But he tells them that if they won't heed those, they will know his punishment. Effectively, the stern warning to this next generation is, I want to bless you, but if you don't obey, I have to punish you. Understand this morning that many a generation of Christians and countless millions of believers have failed in this challenge to know God, and because of that, they know His punishment. You cannot have good without the warning of the bad. Romans chapter 11 and verse 22, Paul is talking to Israel and their suspended state because of their rejection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But to those believers, he says this in verse 22, behold, therefore the goodness and severity of God on them, which fell severity toward thee, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise thou also shall be cut off. In other words, we can have the fellowship and the life from God cut off from us. Oh, the relationship is secure and we can't lose the salvation in the New Testament, but we certainly can feel like God is a million miles away. God is both good and severe, the Bible teaches. Thus, He offers both praise and punishment. Praise for obedience and punishment to correct for disobedience. One of the more difficult passages in all the Bible is read in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. The verses before this tell us to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But in verse 5, the writer picks up and says, "...and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son..." Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. In other words, when God comes and his word come into your life and tells you what is right and what is wrong, don't run from it, receive it. Listen when he chastens, when he rebukes you. He says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth. Those two words there, chasten, is a verbal warning. Scourge is a physical warning or a physical touch. He scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? You know whose kids I don't discipline? Yours. You know whose kids I do discipline? Mine. If they're not my kids, I usually don't discipline them. It'll get me in trouble with the law. Some of you wish I'd come in and discipline your kids. Sometimes I wish you would discipline your kids. And sometimes you wish I would discipline my kids. But I can only discipline my kids because they're my kids. And that's what God is saying spiritually happens. He goes on and says this. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards. You're not even his son. This morning, if God's punishment is resting upon you, recognize it is for your good so that you would move back to knowing His person and His promises. This is the challenge to the next generation. He finishes, secondly, with the choice in each generation. I'll be quicker in this point. After speaking to the leaders of the people and encouraging them to meet the challenge, Joshua turns to the whole congregation in chapter 24. And lays before them a choice. We read it in verse 15. The Bible says God is speaking here and Joshua is paraphrasing or giving, excuse me, God's direct word. He says this and paraphrases his own thoughts at the end of verse 15. He says, if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood. Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. We shall serve the Lord. Wow! Man, that is a choice. I've been in a lot of our church families' homes. I've seen this verse on mugs, on cards, on pictures, on quilts, on blankets, on every kind of nook knack, and patty and everything else that's in your house. And I love it. Because what you're saying... By putting something like that up is that's what I want. Now, we may not be perfect in keeping it. But it's always an encouragement when I come into your homes and I find it somewhere emblazoned for the whole home to know this is where we're staking our claim. The choice to serve the Lord begins, letter A, with the choice to love God. To love God. In verse 11 of chapter 23, he had finished by telling the leaders this, Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that ye love the Lord your God. We noted in verse 8 that we are to cleave to the Lord, but the choice is that we love the Lord. What does it mean to love? To love means You leave all others behind. When I married Jessica 18 and a half years ago, I basically said there is not another woman that I love with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. In a human sense, she's the only one for me. So every other single gal in the world melted away. I'm going to be very careful how I say it here, but I don't care about any of them because I only care about her. That's what it means to love. It means to leave the others behind. Now, in the early service, I had made the statement that besides my wife, the only women in this world that I love are my mom, my mother-in-law, and if God had given us any daughters, them. Somebody came up and said, don't you love your sister? And I said, that's debatable. (laughs) I do love my sister. My mom and dad aren't in this service, so I can say that. Of course, I love my sister. But there's only one gal for me. To love means you leave everything else behind. There's no others that are important to you. The second thing I think it means to love that you can note or at least understand when we talk about loving God is it means that we change to His wishes. When Jessica and I first met, I would walk around my apartment or I'd walk around the basement of the house that I was living in and I'd scratch my belly and I'd burp. Do you know what I don't do anymore? <laughs> As much? <laughs> I mean, when we started having boys, she's smiling at me. When we started having boys, there's some of those old bachelor traits. I mean, I didn't get married until I was 29, right? And some of those old traits started coming back out. But when you love somebody, you're willing to make changes for them. Let me ask you a question when it comes to your love for God. When was the last time you were willing to change anything for him? That's what he asked in verse 11. Take good heed to yourselves. Pay attention to your inner thinking, your inner processing, who you are and how you are before Almighty God. Does it matter at all? Because if there's nothing you're willing to give up, then you really don't love God at all. That's the truth. That's what love means. Well, I think Jesus just loves me for who I am. He did, and he died for you. And as soon as you receive that gracious gift of salvation, you need to love him as your everything. And begin to change. That takes us to the third thing I think love means. It means to sacrifice. It means to sacrifice. There's not a thing in this world that I wouldn't do for my wife. Not a thing. That even meant changing diapers when the babies were little. Doing the laundry and washing dishes if she's not feeling well, like we did this last week. That doesn't make me a hero. It just means I'm willing to sacrifice because I love her. Every husband and every wife knows these truths to be true. And yet, so often as a Christian, we can't... Connect those dots to loving God. Well, God, I'll come to church and make you happy. Can I suggest to you that if your reason for coming to church is to make God happy, you're missing the point altogether. Joshua gives them a challenge to cleave through the choice of love in verses 8 and 11 of chapter 23. In fact, what Joshua is doing is drawing them back to what God actually gave through Moses to the second generation. Now he's giving it to the third generation. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, we call it the Shema. The Hebrews call it the Shema. They make it a little bit more guttural sound. But in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, it says this. Hear, O Israel. That's the Shema. The Lord our God is one Lord. What are we supposed to hear and obey? What are we supposed to do? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. In every part of your being, you're to love God that way. And this is what Joshua is reminding them of. By the way, Jesus goes on in Matthew 22 and verse 37, says the same thing in all of the Gospels. Here's how it comes across in Matthew's recording of it in Matthew 22 and verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. The first choice that we must make to meet the challenge that God has given to us through Joshua in the next generation and really in every generation is to love God. But secondly, letter be, it's to live genuinely. In chapter 24 and verse 14, he says, Now, therefore, fear The Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. The beginning of verse 14. To fear means to respect and honor. We are to respect and honor the Lord and because of that be motivated to live our lives genuinely for Him. The word sincerity means to do a thing completely, to be blameless in your performance of a task. We are to respect and serve God completely. We're to do it in truth. It's not just the genuine nature of our heart to serve. It is in the truth of it, the veracity, we might say, the objectiveness of it. The word truth means to walk or conduct oneself in accordance with God's holy standards. Truth is inseparably tied to faithfulness. It is essential that we walk in an objectively true way before God. This is what it means to live genuinely, not to your own wishes and to your own whims. You cannot live however you want and say you love God. He says, no, if you love God, then you're going to live genuinely that life. And that's something that the next generation has to know. And by the way, moms and dads of teenagers and younger, you can't just tell them that. You have to live that. You have to show them that. That's why this living genuinely is so important. The reason so many churches die is because somewhere along the way there's a generation that says, Oh, we love God. Oh, would you come out and live for God? No, no, I'm not going to do that dries up and dies on the vine because the Spirit of God departs that place. They no longer know His person at all. The final thought this morning is letter C. We're to listen graciously. We might even say grace-filled or in a gracious way. From verse 15, Joshua lays down that famous gauntlet of choice. The people answered in verse 16, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage in which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore, will we also serve the Lord for he's our God. That is correct. That is true. But I love verse 19 because sometimes we get into the modern Christian thinking of everything's going to be hunky-dory and everything's always just going to be a-okay. And that's just not how the Christian life is. And so mean, old, codgerly Joshua, he's old and stricken in age, right? Let me tell you something, boy. That's how he says it, I'm sure. Some of you are like, is that what I sound like? No. It's what I'm going to sound like someday when I'm Edward's age. Verse number 19, here's what Joshua warns them about. It goes along with the punishment aspect, meaning know what you're signing up for. By the way, to our young people in here, understand that this church, but more importantly, the gospel's hope rides on you. It rests on us right now, but into the future it rides. Its success is dependent upon the next generation of this church and every good Bible preaching church of young people saying, hey, this is pretty serious. Here's what Joshua said unto the people, ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. Wait, what? Thanks, Debbie Downer. He's a jealous God. Man, this is getting harder. He will not forgive in your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he hath done you good verse 21 is our hope it echoes what it says in verse 24 and the people said unto the joshua nay but we will serve the lord and joshua said unto the people your witnesses all right i'm gonna hold you to that so is god you witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord. By the way, I think Joshua's got a big smile on his face. I think he's happy because this is what God wants. To serve him. Uh, he, he says, uh, and they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he says, put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you. And incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, the Lord our God will we serve. And his voice will we obey. Listen to God filled with His grace. The commitment that comes in salvation is an important commitment. These are people here filled with God's grace. Joshua warns them, this won't be easy. They respond, we know, but we're willing to take on the task. This is a a, a significant ceremony, follows this in verse 26. The Bible says, so Joshua, verse 25, made a covenant with the people that day, set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up under the oak tree. that was by the sanctuary where the tabernacle was set up. And Joshua said unto the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us. For it hath heard all the words of the Lord, which he spake unto us. It shall therefore be a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. So Joshua, let the people depart, every man into his inheritance. God has done much for you, Joshua says, and will not take lightly his commitments you give in return. May I suggest that's the same message God gives to us in salvation. Jesus said it this way in John 15 and verse 14. "Ye are my friends, if... You do whatsoever I command you. A few verses before, Jesus said this in verses 9 and 10. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. We, friends, freely receive God's grace, just as Israel did in entering the promised land. Too often, we do not take the agreement of grace seriously enough. Salvation is free, hallelujah. But that salvation produces in us a desire to live our lives in a way that should reflect God's holiness, goodness, and that grace. And when they said, His voice we will obey, they are saying, we will shema, we will listen. The words we will obey are exactly the same words in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, hear this generation says we've heard and we're going to obey. This is what we want to do. God expects you to listen to Him and to motivate your every action according to the grace that is given to you. It is that grace in which we stand. In Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, and that grace is where we stand and rejoice in the hope or the confidence of the glory, presence and person and promises of God. The fight with sin has been fought by God, just like he did for Israel entering the promised land in the person of Jesus Christ for you and I this morning. You and I stand in that grace just as Israel stood here victorious before Joshua. It begs the question then, will you make the same commitment to obey God? In closing, Joshua is a prototype. He's a picture of who Jesus Christ would be. If we wanted to add a third point, we could say that there's the challenge, there's the choice, and Joshua represents the champion. What Jesus will do for us. These Israelites under Joshua experienced great victory in the Promised Land. They overcame the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, and many of the others. They defeated Jericho. They even overcame setbacks. Their endeavors throughout the land were blessed by God as God fought for them. This is what Jesus will do in our lives. The question really then this morning is, will you meet the challenge and will you make the choice? This is what Joshua has presented. For the older generation, meet the challenge, make the choice. For the active middle generation, meet the challenge, make the choice. And for the younger generation growing up, boy... Meet the challenge and make the choice to love God, live genuinely, and listen to everything that God gives to us. Father, help us, I pray, as we close this.